and welcome to the sixth episode of the Well Project's Leadership Exchange podcast. The Well Project's Leadership Exchange is a series connecting thought leaders in the HIV community to explore one another's work, activism, and personal experiences. This series brings together cis and trans women and others who uplift women's voices across the HIV community in dialogue. Today's episode features the Well Project's Community Advisory Board member, Katie Willingham, and Nana Kana, a member of the Well Project's Women Research Initiative on HIV-AIDS and the co-executive director of PWN USA, a close partner of the Well Project. Listen as these women describe their journeys to HIV advocacy and about how they practice self-care. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Well Project's Leadership Exchange. I am Katie Willingham. I am a, uh, a Girl Like Me blogger and community advisory board member with the Well Project. I am also the Alabama State Lead uh, Policy Fellowship graduate and uh, spokesperson in training for the Positive Women's Network. And I am so excited about today's conversation because I get to talk to one of my biggest heroes in the world, Miss Nana Kana. I'm so excited. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself, Nana? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so excited to be in conversation with you, Katie. Um, I'm Nana Kana, pronouns she or they. I'm a director and one of the founding members of Positive Women's Network USA. And um, for those who don't know, we are a national membership body of women, including women of trans experience, working to build power um, for our communities. Um, and we are all um, women living with HIV. And so we're all around the country, all around the US. Um, and um, yeah. I'm just very excited to be here and to be in this conversation. And also for those who don't know, I come to this work as a woman living with HIV. I was diagnosed in 2002. That's wonderful. Um, yeah, I was I was so excited to uh, to do this conversation when I was when I was first approached to do uh, uh, to do one of these leadership exchanges. I was uh, and. I knew who I wanted to. I knew who I wanted to talk to, Miss Nana Kana, uh, because I have I have been enamored with you for for ever since I met you. Uh, I met uh, the the Positive Women's Network at Speak Up Conference in 2016, and and I was I was uh, impressed with you before I ever met you because because all of the women that I talked to were just so amazing. And, and, uh, you know, to be, I think to be a leader of, of amazing people, you have to be pretty amazing yourself. Yeah, I was really excited about it too. When, um, when you reached out, you know, Katie, I remember meeting you and I remember you showing up at that summit and I remember just, you know, you bringing your kind of like, um, quiet, fierce, committed self. And I remember being like, wow, I want to, um, I want to know more about this person. I want to like get to know her better and, um, see how we can collaborate more. So 
it's been definitely a journey. Like I think we've known each other for a little over four years now and um, probably, you know, four of the most um, challenging years from like a policy and organizing perspective in many ways. So I'm just very grateful that we've been able to collaborate over the last few years. I think it's made the, the work for our um, members in, in Alabama, throughout the South, you know, your leadership has made the work so much stronger um, and also your role as a spokesperson and doing other things for PWN. Thank you. Um, well, I guess uh, we can get into the questions I have. Um, my first question that I prepared was, what made you decide to get into advocacy rather than just living your own life? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I I had been an activist and an organizer before I was diagnosed with HIV. Um, I'd been working on different kinds of issues um, around um, environmental issues, you know, kind of like unchecked capitalism. I was kind of like organizing around the WTO and other things. After 9-11, I did um, a lot of anti-war organizing and also, um, uh, organizing around the how um, Muslims were being portrayed and the impact that um, that a lot of the xenophobia and hatred that came out of um, you know the response to 9/11 was really having on brown communities. I saw it impacting my community. So I, I was working on a number of different issues um, before I got involved in HIV work. And when I first was diagnosed. Um, I totally kept my diagnosis very quiet, um, very secret. I didn't really tell anyone in the beginning. Um, I didn't even go and get my CD4 count checked or my viral load checked. You know, I just got my diagnosis, but I was so afraid of dealing with it. I was kind of in denial. Um, and I was also really afraid of being in the system as having a, you know, a chronic health condition, um, because at that time we didn't have the Affordable Care Act. And so I was really like terrified of being discriminated against for health insurance and things like that. So for lots of different, you know, personal internalized stigma reasons and also um, reasons of like fear of like access and barriers to access. Um, I wasn't really, ha I didn't have any sort of community of support. I didn't really know any other women living with HIV um, for the first few years. And, um, but I faced, I faced, um, you know, my own challenges as a woman living with HIV. I, um, I was discriminated against in a reproductive healthcare setting very early on in my diagnosis. Um, I also, when I did try to access services, which was about two years after I was diagnosed, um, I tried to get into care and I found that the um, the, the service providers were really not very focused on women. Um, when I went to them with concerns at that time, I was in my mid twenties, you know, something that was on my mind was if I'm going to start medication, what does that mean? If I want to get pregnant at that some point, at some point, um, or have a child at some point. And so that was one of the questions I was asking, um, you know, the treatment advocate who was talking to me about my options and he wasn't able to answer my questions. Um, and I realized it was because most of the clients he was seeing were cisgender males. And so, 
he wasn't equipped or prepared for the questions of a young cisgender woman of color, um, you know, to, he just wasn't prepared to respond. And so um, in the beginning, I, you know, I kind of thought those were just experiences I was having. Um, but as I got involved in the HIV community a little bit more, I became, um, I became a client at a women-focused HIV organization in California called World, which provides amazing peer support programs. Um, I had a peer advocate. I started to volunteer there and get a little bit more involved in the community. And I really started to see that the, um, the issues that I had faced were very much not personal um, to me. They were really systemic and structural issues that women living with HIV, especially black and brown women, especially low-income women, especially women of trans experience, um, women who faced other forms of, you know, um, stigma, maybe based on mental health or substance use. Um, women living with HIV were being systematically kind of excluded from, um, from focus in programs, in funding, in service delivery, in research. And I started to really, you know, understand and learn that more as I talked to so many other women uh, living with HIV who really became my, um, my teachers and my mentors. And so um, I, it was scary for me to think about uh, being more public about my HIV status. And it actually took me a while to do that even if, after I got involved in advocacy and organizing. Uh, but it just became really clear that I couldn't be silent and I needed to use my, um, my experience, my skills, my time, my resources in whatever way I could to address these um, systemic injustices. Yeah. I find that so interesting that you were in that that you were in so much advocacy before uh, before PWN or even before getting into HIV advocacy, which leads me to my next question: Was uh, please please tell me about the beginnings of PWN USA and your proudest accomplishments since becoming an advocate. So um, PWN was founded by 28 really diverse women living with HIV. Um, we were founded from an understanding and a connection that there was no organized collective voice speaking on behalf of women living with HIV in this country. So what we were seeing was, you know, in um, in national policy and federal policy, um, the people who were making decisions on behalf of the HIV community were first of all, often not people living with HIV. And secondly, um, when they were people living with HIV, they were usually uh, white cisgender males um, who had various kinds of professional education, and different kinds of um, like formal education privilege. Um, they also tended to come from, you know, have have more access to like money and resources, maybe through their families and things like that. And that's just not the demographics of what women living with HIV in the U.S. look like. Um, and so we, um, you know, there were there have always been women on the front lines, women living with HIV on the front lines responding to this epidemic. Um, 
women living with HIV have always led the way since the very beginning of the HIV epidemic, have always led the way, founding organizations, um, advocating on behalf of, um, of, of women, but also men and, um, and transgender people developing programs, um, you know, creating support groups, um, doing advocacy around clinical trials. Women living with HIV has always been there um, holding space for our communities, but um, we weren't all necessarily talking to each other or collaborating together. And so um, so part of what I found and um, what came up in conversations with other women living with HIV leaders was that we really needed to be more strategic about how we worked together, um, about how we worked together to uplift and center in particular black and brown women, women in the South, which is a big, you know, um, a, where a big burden of the epidemic is among women living with HIV, women of trans experience, um, women who often don't get to sit at decision-making tables because maybe they don't have all the letters behind their names, but we know that we have lived expertise to bring um, and, and a lot of wisdom and a lot of like, you know, learned knowledge along the way to bring to bear um, that can actually better policies and better programs for everyone. And so, um, so around 2007, we started to talk about um, what it would look like to bring uh, to, to bring together women from all around the country um, and to kind of see if there was interest in starting something together, uh, like a coalition or some sort of collaborative. Um, and that idea was also inspired in large part by networks of women living with HIV across the world. So um, I had had the opportunity to go to a conference in Kenya and um, met women from Kenya, from South Africa, from India, um, who were all, they had started positive women's networks in their countries or um, national you know, membership bodies of women living with HIV across the country that were really organizing as civil society groups and holding the governments accountable on the response. And so, the vision for PWN was really so inspired by uh, by women like Prudence Mabele and Kusalia Parasasami and other other women who have been doing the work, you know, for so long in other parts of the world. And so, um, so in in 2008 in June, we were able to come together to bring together 28. Um, women living with HIV from around the country. We had our youngest uh, founding member was 21 years old, I think. Our oldest was 72. Um, we had women of trans experience. We had women who had been born outside the US. We had women who were not um, English speakers. Um, so we had interpretation in Spanish um, as well. We had, um, we had uh, women who had other kinds of um, disabilities. Uh, so, you know, we had, I think we had ASL interpretation there for one of the participants as well. So it was a real diverse group. Um, but the one thing we all had in common was that we were all working on HIV in our communities, our local communities in some type of way. And we all had a vision for what the response needed to look like to be more grounded in centering those who are most impacted by the epidemic. Um, and so that's really how we started. We spent about three days um, doing a lot of really deep visioning about what our 
um, what our values were, what, what our what the principles were that needed to guide our work, what it might look like to work together. Um, you know, it's not always easy to just form something with a bunch of people you don't know and don't have like a shared history with, right? So, so we took it slow in the beginning. Um, and one of my, you know, one of my favorite movement thinkers and writers, Adrienne Marie Brown, um, talks about in her work, the importance of moving at the speed of trust. And so that's what we did. We moved at the speed of trust. We went slow in the beginning. Um, but there was also a lot happening in the external environment at this time. So in 2008, you know, we were in the midst of a really big presidential election cycle. And um, it was a presidential election cycle where one of the uh, one of the main things that was happening in the HIV community was that there had been this call from HIV leaders for a national AIDS strategy to be developed. Um, that 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 needed to be what any candidate from any party was signing on to. That was the main ask from the HIV community because we had for years as a country. Um, been requiring that other countries who get PEPFAR funding, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, have their own national plans to address their HIV epidemics. But in like, you know, typical US exceptionalism, we never had our own. So this was a demand from, um, from many HIV community leaders was that the next president, whoever, uh, whoever that person is, must commit to having a national HIV strategy um, for the United States. And so in fact, in that cycle, we were able to get commitments from um, from all of the leading campaigns. At that time, you know, McCain was running, Obama was running, there were other candidates running. We were able to get candidates from the major, uh, commitments from the major um, candidates who were running in that cycle. Um, but if you, even if you looked at the demographics of who was on the steering committee for the Coalition for a National AIDS Strategy, in the beginning, there were no women living with HIV on that steering committee we weren't seen as necessary players, as powerful players that these other entities would reach out to, to even include. So we demanded a seat at that steering committee um, as, a, as a group basically, and, and started to get involved in organizing. So, um, you know, so there was a lot of stuff moving in this external environment and we wanted to make sure that, um, that women's needs would be effectively represented. Um, needs of trans women, needs of cisgender women, um, needs of women from the communities most impacted by HIV in the US. Sorry, I think that was kind of a long answer, but. <laughs> Um, oh, and you also asked me about accomplishments. I'm sorry. <laughs> Something, some things you're most proud of. Uh huh. Things I'm most proud of. Um, you know, I'm proud of I'm proud of so many things that we have done. Our members are incredibly powerful all around the country, and um, I'm proud that we have. I'm, I'm most proud, I think, that we have created a space where women living with HIV who may not have ever advocated before um, at, a, at a policy level can see themselves as advocates and can gain the skills and the tools to, um, to do things like showing up at their next, um, you know, clinic advisory board meeting to talk about needing childcare at the clinic or um, needing a place for to be able to bring their kids so that they can play while they're in appointments or you know needing transportation vouchers. I'm proud of that. 
of any woman living with HIV who's able to come through us and then get, go and provide testimony at her, um, you know, at her city council or her board of supervisors meeting about what the HIV response looks like, or you know, or um, at the state or federal level, um, we have. So yeah, so more than anything, I'm proud of creating, uh, of being part of creating this container for women living with HIV to um, to recognize and honor our own power um, and to believe that our lived experience makes us powerful and makes us experts. And that has shown up in you know lots of different ways. We've had different wins along the way. Um, that I'm also really proud of. We have we were successful in moving the Obama administration to uh, develop a federal interagency work group on HIV violence against women and gender related health disparities that ultimately changed the national HIV AIDS strategy to incorporate metrics around trauma and violence as they're experienced by women living with HIV and look at that real that intersection that makes a huge difference in our lives. Um, I'm, I'm very proud of that work. I'm also proud that our members rolled hard in the recent election cycle and um, you know, phone banked and text banked and volunteered a lot of hours. I'm proud that we were able to also provide um, economic opportunities to people to be involved in that work over the 2020 election cycle. Our folks understood what was on the line. Our people, our members helped to defeat the repeal of the Affordable Care Act three times. You know, I'm really proud of, I'm proud of the work that our members do. And I'm also proud of the um, the type of organization that we try to be. Um, you know, we're always learning and growing and we're certainly not perfect, but I'm, I'm proud that we're taking more and more steps towards um, trying to integrate healing justice as a part of our work and understand and articulate clearly that healing is a necessary part of organizing and healing is a necessary aspect of liberation of our people. Um, and it's only from, you know, from recognizing our, um, our connection to, to healing practice and, and practice and committing to live into that which takes a lot of work, um, you know, in in organizations or institutions or movements when things are moving fast and the the external environment is so traumatic. Often, our movements and our organizations just reproduce trauma and violence inside of our environments, um, even when we don't mean to. And so, um, I'm proud that we are actively looking at that and confronting it and trying to push back by the ways that we work together. And it's that a process. Yes, that's awesome. Now, um, who is your Shiro? Why and how have they affected your life? Oh my gosh, um, that's a big question. I've I have so many Shiros. Um, I have so many Shiros. Uh, I get my inspiration from a lot of different people. Um, you know, I get my inspiration from you, Katie, and I get my inspiration from my mom, and I get my inspiration from uh, women like Vanessa Johnson, who have been in the field doing the work for a long time, and and my my coworkers are also my sheroes, and our all of our members are are my sheroes. You know, that's why we have a shear of the month because we can never. Um, 
we can never, you know, catch up to recognizing how amazing all of our members really are. And I learned from a lot of them. But I think somebody who's really top of my mind in this moment is Stacey Abrams. Um, uh, as one of my many sheroes, um, she, her strategic vision, her clarity, um, her ability to persevere, her her commitment to understand the rules and also understand when they are not serving us and disrupt them and create new rules as necessary. Um, you know, I think those are all qualities that I really admire. Um, I admire her ability to look at and play the long game. I admire her, um, her ability to be unapologetic about who she is and what she stands for and you know her non-concession speech and in her book she talks about how um uh compromise can be a strategic act and it's important to know when um you know concession is not about loss but is about sometimes a greater vision for what is possible and um i i think that you know that Stacey Abrams um, is a person who really understands power and um, who has um, who has in the face of so many different types of um, of oppression and injustice and um, systemic violence um, has always had clarity about what is right. Um, and and how she was going to get there and what she was going to make happen. And, um, you know, she is a person who doesn't always need to be at the front. Uh, so by building, you know, after her um, gubernatorial campaign, uh, which she did not lose, by the way, um, after that building fair fight action, really reshaping the entire landscape of electoral possibility, not only for Georgia, but for um, several other important states and ultimately changing the course of what is possible at the national level today. Um, you know, we're sitting here in this moment of the last day of a, an authoritarian regime presidency um, where Stacey Abrams work is literally a big part of what has gotten us to a point of possibility. Um, so yeah, I think I'm just, I'm feeling her presence a lot today. Yeah, she changed the landscape of, of Georgia, <laughs> Georgia politics. That's, she is she is an amazing woman. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, can I ask you a question, Katie? Sure. Yeah, I'm just, I'm curious to hear, um, you know, I've gotten to witness and see some of your work and um, you are somebody who I just admire so much because you are always, um, you you always, you know, kind of like show up where it's really important. You always seem to have a, um, a very clear analysis of what's going on. You're such a great writer. Um, you're just, and you're such a powerful advocate. And I see you also supporting and mentoring others. And I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about what inspires you and, um, and what, what are some of the proudest moments of your own work and your own advocacy and leadership journey? Um, <clears throat> oh gosh, that's, well, who inspires me is, as, as I said, uh, the women of the Positive Women's Network, uh, women of the Well Project, um, 
these sisterhoods have been have been so powerful for me so so inspiring and there's uh so many so many to choose from um for for different reasons um just so many women uh inspire me uh in so many ways i'm i'm proud uh, you know anytime i can anytime i can uh overcome my fears really um doing things doing things like this uh, uh you know because because i have i have such hard trouble speaking uh, writing is writing is one of my strengths. I think that's one of my strengths, but speaking is not. <laughs> speaking, I have so much trouble with, and 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 I want to do better than I want to do better with it. I want to uh, I want to uh, learn to overcome my fears and become a better speaker. And so I and so I take on things like this, and and uh, you know, anytime I can speak, you know, I will I will. I'll take it on, even though it absolutely terrifies me. And uh, because each time I do, I get just a little bit better. And so, and so, I guess that uh, that makes me proud that that I can overcome those fears and and to uh, uh, to accomplish. I know it's uh, it's 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 a process, you know, and, uh, you know, I've, I've been, you know, I got into advocacy like four years ago and, and I know when we met, I was, <laughs> I was a lot shyer than, than, than I am now a lot quieter. And, uh, <laughs> I remember, I remember first, uh, I remember first time speaking to some people, I had trouble getting the words out you know, and, and, uh, so, so I'm, I'm gradually getting better and, and seeing that process, uh, makes me proud. Uh, you know, my, you know, my growth, however, however gradual or, or, uh, you know, if, uh, whatever growth I can, I can accomplish makes me proud. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I really believe that um, a very key aspect of leadership, like as, as I've learned is um, the willingness to be uncomfortable, um, you know, to like step outside of my own comfort zone. And I'm not a person who really likes speaking either, to tell you the truth. I actually hate public speaking. I hate... <laughs> I hate doing interviews. I hate doing things like this, but, um, but I, <laughs> it's like so outside of my comfort zone, but, um, but I think that, yeah, willingness to be uncomfortable, I think is part of the mark of leadership because it means that we're, um, we're willing to grow. And it's also about, um, you know, being willing to, look at places where we might not be as strong and, um, and do something anyway. Like it's, it's easy to do things that you're always good at, you know, <laughs> um, it's harder to 
to show up um, in, in spaces where you're like, I don't know if I'm the best. And then I also think that a lot as, as women living with HIV, um, as, you know, as women who may be like sitting with different types of like social um, marginalization, whether it's based on race or gender identity or, you know, or, um, like formal education or, you know, HIV status, whatever the things are. I think, um, I think we often tend to move through the world with a lot of imposter syndrome that we have to overcome as well. Like, um, I don't know if you have that experience, but I've had a lot of times questioning, uh, myself, am I really the right person to be here? Um, do I have anything to contribute? What do I have to contribute? And so, um, I think that a lot of um, a lot of women living with HIV have that experience, and I think that part of what we can try to do together is to support each other and you know prepare each other to be in those types of spaces and um, to and to know that um, that's not you know that's not necessarily. Um, reflective of like a lack of expertise that we have to bring to the table. Um, like, yes, we should be as prepared as possible, do our homework, talk to our folks. Like, you know, um, I, I lean on and consult with other people very, very much before I go into spaces. Um, and I think that's part of the power of a network like PWN is that we don't want any woman to just like have to go into a space on her own. Like if you're going to be representing women living with HIV on, you know, on like what should COVID vaccine distribution for women living with HIV look like? Well, then I'm going to go talk to a bunch of women living with HIV about what they think um, and make sure that I have their input. And yeah, I, I just think that um, we you have so much to offer, Katie, and I'm really I'm really um, grateful that you have like chosen to take those risks. Thank you. That, that could go right into my next question is, this next question was, was really important for me uh, to ask uh, because sometimes, you know, Sometimes we see our leaders or 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 people we highly respect. Uh, uh, we we can think of them so highly that and that we feel like we can't attain that ourselves. You know, we we put so much on 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 ourselves, and and a lot of us have so much self doubt. You know, we we doubt ourselves, and 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 uh, and that and we allow that that to prevent us from, from taking on leadership roles ourselves, you know, thinking we're not good enough and, and, and such. So, so I love to hear people I highly respect talk about their, talk about their weaknesses and, and, and things. Cause that, that makes, it makes it more relatable for me and, 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 uh, shows me that if they can do it, I can too. So, uh, this next question was so important for me. What, do you see as your weaknesses or insecurities? Do they still affect you and how do you deal with them? Yeah. Um, so I, um, I'm a big believer in 
supporting people to operate from a place of strength. So to really understand what people's, um, what people's strengths are, whether that is like, you know, somebody in my, in my personal life, somebody who's a PWN member, myself, my staff, um, to really understand what folks' strengths are and try to build and create, um, like, projects that they can do, take on, lead, um, that speak to their strengths. And I apply that to myself as well. So I have a lot of weaknesses. There are a ton of things I'm really not that good at. Um, I'm also a, a student of something called Strengths Finder, which is um, like a, you know, there's like a test you can take and it gives you some insights about from a list of like, I think it's like 34 kind of like core competencies, which ones are your biggest strengths, which ones are your, um, are the ones you're not as good at. So um, one of the things that I've learned through my study of StrengthsFinder is that to, to understand that like my, um, my biggest weaknesses come when my strengths are not managed, if that makes sense. So um, like I can, anybody can have, you know, there are no strengths that are better than other strengths. Um, everybody has strengths and all of those strengths are important as part of a team. So I am not the best person to, um, you know, like fill out the details on a plan. Like that's just not something I'm very good at. Um, I, I can, I'll do it if I have to, um, but <laughs> it's not something I'll choose to do. It's not something that comes very naturally to me. Um, so, you know, so I, I need somebody on my team who's really good at that and who is like happy to do that um, and happy to sort of fill things in. But also when I look at like my strengths um, from Strengths Finder, I can also clearly see where some of my weaknesses are. So for example, one of my... Um, I, I'm going to use the word strengths and weaknesses kind of interchangeably. One of my strengths slash like biggest weaknesses is, um, is connectedness. I can really um, very like easily and intuitively see how things fit together. Um, it's actually really hard for me not to look at things that way. So that can be, um, that can be great when you're doing like big picture planning, but it can be really um, frustrating for people who are trying to collaborate with me on a project because I keep seeing all these connections to other stuff. And um, so I can risk taking us a little bit off track sometimes um, instead of like focusing in on the task at hand. And so um, I have to learn to manage that in myself so that I don't um, you know, frustrate people, overwhelm them, <laughs> um, you know, take us off the agenda. <laughs> so, so I use, I use a lot of tools to help me manage those kinds of um, those kinds of weaknesses in my day-to-day -day life. Like if I'm working on an agenda, I use a tool called POP, Purpose Outcomes Process, so that I'm really clear. I, I wanna be clear about what we're there to do, what we're trying to get out of it, how we're gonna get there. Um, you know, every step of the way is gonna be mapped to where we're trying to go. Um, so that's, I guess that's that's one example for me. Okay. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'll, uh, I have to look up that app myself. That, that, uh, that Strength Finder. Strength Finder. Yeah, I can send it to you. Okay. Yeah, I could use that. <laughs> um, my next question is: 
what is the greatest challenge or obstacle you've ever faced? And have you ever faced one you couldn't overcome? Um, the greatest challenge or obstacle I've ever faced. I think, I think I would have to say um, despair is probably the greatest challenge or obstacle I've ever faced. Um, and it came up for me a lot um, in 2020, um, you know, just like the, the constant pressure of the environment that we've been in, um, the toll that it has taken on, on people who I really care about deeply, um, the toll that it took on me, you know, from the, the political environment to the pandemic to just like the, how um, impossible things started to feel, you know, at a certain point. Um, to me, that is the most dangerous uh, obstacle or challenge. Like anything else I've faced, like I've faced personal hardship, I've faced professional hardship, I've, you know, faced like um, people, I've faced like doubting my own leadership or people, other people doubting my leadership. All of that, um, none of that was as challenging as like those moments where I lost hope. Um, and I think, um, you know, I think one of the things that I think about is something that Miriam Kaba talks about. Um, she's a, an abolitionist, an organizer, an amazing thinker, and she talks about hope being a discipline. And that's something that I've tried to stay focused on is hope is a discipline. We have to, um, we have to practice it. We have to be disciplined about practicing it as organizers, as advocates. Um, and we have to be disciplined about um, nurturing ourselves enough not to lose hope. And so um, that's been a big focus of mine going into 2021, because there were definitely some times in 2020 when I honestly wasn't sure if I had anything left to give. Yeah, I know this This has been such a hard year. And I'm, for for so many, I know I went through a hard time this year uh, it, it, for several months. Uh, and and uh, it was just really horrible, horrible year. And 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 you are absolutely right to to sometimes change or 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 to have hope is a deliberate action. You know, it 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 takes deliverance. Uh, uh, you, know, you have to deliberately uh, deliberately choose to choose to have hope you know because you know there was uh there was it was a long time there for that uh, uh I, I know i had lost hope i i had sunk into despair and and it can be so hard to it can be so hard to get out of sometimes but uh but you know like you said during those times is you know is so important to take care of to take care of yourself and and uh, you know do what it takes to to revitalize yourself so you can so you can come back and and, and have something to give to to others. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I really believe that. And you know the 
everything that we've been facing is not gone. In many ways, it's here more than ever. You know, white supremacy is here. Um, the white terrorism and um, transphobia, xenophobia, all those things are still here. Those 74 million people are still here. Um, and so, yeah, it's not, I think that like despair as an obstacle is not so much necessarily just about what's happening in the external environment, but it's very much um, about like the practice of hope, I think is very much about how do we create like communities of care and um, communities that are nurturing and and space to be who we really are. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, it can feel, it's those moments where it feels like it's impossible to make a difference. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that can be very overwhelming. Well, in these times, uh, in, uh, because so many times, so many times are hard, and in these times, what are the things that feed you and enable you to continue being the leader that you are? Um, I think the number one thing is authentic connection and relationships. Um, so. Uh, you know, being able to have conversations like this with you, Katie, um, my my friends and family, having having them in my life, um, having coworkers and colleagues and member leaders that you know where we can talk openly about what is going on and um, and how hard it is. Um, but also, you know, on a personal level, there's a lot of stuff I do. I love to cook. Um, so cooking is a big way I take care of myself and like express my love for myself and other people. Um, I have an amazing dog and, um, she is just such a source of joy in my life. And, you know, it's, it's amazing. Pictures of your <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's just such a, she's like so adventurous and playful and full of love. Like I learn a lot just by watching her, mm -hmm. um, and like, yeah, watching her play can, it, I, it, I'm like completely present when I'm, you know, with her um, and just able to gain some perspective. And I think like spending a lot of time out in nature is really important to me also for, um, for my own self-care and connection and, you know, like maintaining my physical health as well as my mental health. Yeah. Yeah, those are some practices that I try to incorporate regularly. Yeah, I know. I, I know my my fur babies are my number one <laughs> self care tool. I mean, they are amazing soothers. Oh, uh, how many do you have? I have eight shih tzus. <laughs> oh, what? Oh yeah. my goodness! I've seen some pictures, but I didn't realize you had eight. <laughs> It wasn't planned that way. It, yeah. it, it wasn't planned, but but uh, I've discovered I cannot breed. For one, I get too attached to them, and I can't. <laughs> oh my goodness, that is so cute. But yeah, yeah I, I love I love the Yeah, I I don't know what I would do without them. They are they are amazing soothers, and uh, and have helped me through so many times. Yeah, I really feel, I feel you so much. Like when humans can just seem overwhelming and complicated and horrible, sometimes it's it's really They're helpful. Having, and the animal spirits around. 
yeah, they can, yeah, they can, they can simplify things and, 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 and they are unconditional, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks of you. They love you no matter what. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And they remind you of what's really important. Yes. Yes. All right. Uh, I guess if we can fit it in, this is my last question. Um, for those watching who are thinking about leadership roles, in your opinion, what makes a great leader? Hmm. You know, it's, what, I guess one thing that's funny is that it took me um, it took me a long time to even be comfortable with somebody calling me a leader um, to even like, you know, think of myself as a leader. Um, but somebody, one of my mentors um, many years ago, Vanessa Johnson, actually said to me um, that she helped me understand that it's irresponsible not to understand your own power as a quote leader. Like even if I was resisting that um, label, if others are seeing me that way, um, it's my responsibility to, um, to be accountable for what that means um, and to make choices about um, how to use that. And so um, I think my, um, my advice would be to, um, you know, to be, to try to be as honest with yourself as you can about yourself as a leader. I believe that, I believe that everybody is a leader um, and has the capacity to be a leader in various ways. Like leadership looks like lots of different things. We, we have this idea that it's like the person who's out in front, who's doing the interviews or doing the speaking or the training. That's not always who the leader is. That's not the only way to be a leader. Um, Leaders are also the people who build spreadsheets and create project work plans and who, um, you know, who know that it's time to like feed the group and um, and and the people who can, um, you know, lead a guided meditation to like ground a room and ground the energy in the room. Like There are so many different ways to lead. Art is leadership. Music is leadership. So, um, yeah, my I guess my advice would be to like learn yourself, um, be honest with yourself. What are the gifts that you have to offer and how can you best and most responsibly offer them um, to create the vision of the just world that we are holding together? That's awesome. I love that. I love that. Well, I guess uh, we have come to end of our uh, conversation. This has been so much fun. So awesome uh, talking to you. Um, uh, this has been the Well Projects uh, Leadership Exchange with uh, Nana Kana and Katie Willingham. Please check out the rest of this uh, Leadership Exchange series at thewellproject.org and check out the Positive Women's Network at pwn-usa.org. And thank you, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Nana. Thank you so much, Katie, for everything that you do and for being who you are. Um, and thank you so much for having me today. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the sixth episode of the Well Projects Leadership Exchange podcast. You can watch and listen to more episodes on our website, thewellproject.org backslash exchange. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on social media. And don't forget to share.